wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. How does a young boy with a promising future become a thief and a junkie? And how does he turn his life around? That's today's episode of Bleeding Daylight. Jacob Hill was a straight-A student with a dream of winning Olympic gold, but his life took a number of unexpected turns, including crime, drug addiction and coming very close to death. Some would say it's a miracle that Jacob is alive today. How did such a talented young man fall so far, and how did his life turn around? Today, he's a husband, father, author and pastor. Jacob is my guest for this episode of Bleeding Daylight. Welcome. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Rodney. I want to get to know the eager young boy who had such an amazing life stretched out ahead of him. Uh, tell me about those early years. Oh gosh, I just my big probably my biggest memory or the sort of the the overarching sort of feeling like I, I carry from my childhood is like you said, eager. Like I was just I loved life, and life was was good, and my parents were amazing, and I was taught that I could do anything and the results I was producing were showing it and I just had such a such a confidence that um that whatever I put my hand to I was going to succeed at and so yeah I just had just was so excited for life and so excited for the future so you, your studies were going well and you're also excelling at sport yeah so I it didn't start out good in school like I, I look back it was probably like ADD or um, dyslexia or something I remember like every single recess I'd be kept in to finish work off and homework was a nightmare. But then at some point it sort of clicked and I ended up finishing primary school with straight A's pretty much. And then high school on a sports scholarship it was like champion of athletics right through school. I was captain of my school hockey team and the factions and all of that. And the icing on the cake was when I went to high school on a hockey scholarship and we're training at the Commonwealth Hockey Stadium, the big stadium here in Perth, four times a week, twice with school, twice with my club, playing there on the weekends. And sometimes during the week, we'd actually have the Australian hockey team on the other end of the pitch. And that was crazy. Like, you're literally seeing my dream, like, because my dream was to play hockey for Australia and literally getting to shake hands with, like, my dream. <laughs> like, it was, in my mind, it was very, very done. So when it came to hockey, what was your biggest dream? A gold medal. That was... That was it. Like the Australian Kookaburras at that point had won a silver medal. One of the guys played for my club and put his silver medal on one time, like wearing it around my neck thinking, wow, this is so good, but I'm going to go one better. And that was, yeah, that literally was everything. And there was really no doubt in your mind at that stage that that was going to happen? No, not a fraction of doubt. So how could all of that come crashing down? You're in high school, your grades are good, you're, you're rising through the ranks at a rather elite level of playing hockey. How did all that begin to unwind? So at all about the same time, um, my parents separated and I developed a disease in my knees. So within a couple of months, the rug was pulled out from under me and I just did not know where I was, who I was, where I belonged. Everything I dreamt about was just gone and I didn't have a backup plan. Uh, my identity was really busted up from my dad leaving because I just sort of thought if he really loved us, he wouldn't have left us. And then I sort of, you know, just a little kid, 13, really just got the message I wasn't worth loving. 
And then all of the other stuff I'd gotten validation for from my whole life, that was gone as well. Because I was never like a real social kid. I was always, I had plenty of friends and stuff, but that was mostly, I think, because of sport, because I was a little bit socially awkward. And um, as much as I'd try to put on a confident front, always pretty shy. And I totally lost, man, like just totally lost. So in the middle of this, your family's starting to fall apart and you've lost your dream of representing your country and winning Olympic gold. That also means that hockey teammates that had become your closest friends are all gone as well. Everything's falling away beneath you. My mates were all guys I trained with and played with. All of a sudden, I couldn't play anymore. I could barely walk for a while. Like I could, like I remember just the pain trying to get upstairs and stuff because I had this growing disease in my knees. Really, I felt very, very alone and found myself trying to work out where did I fit in, who, you know. Like with my dad, you sort of, I was always felt like someone's looking out for me, someone's sort of keeping me in line a bit, someone's believing in me. And then with my mates, always, you know, felt that camaraderie, that real team spirit sort of thing. You get the validation that you get playing sport, team sport. And I just like lost both sides of... I guess the people that gave me a lot of my identity and and I just really started to look for that. I was like and and I wouldn't have been able to tell you that as a 13-year-old kid like but looking back retrospectively that's what I can really see that's what I was doing and that's why I actually settled hanging out with people who were really living a risky lifestyle that I did not agree with. I just wanted to belong like my brother was hanging out with these guys that started smoking pot. Um, they were doing graffiti and petty crime, like breaking enters and stuff like that. Man, I just wanted to belong, I, I think. Yeah, and I was pretty prepared to do anything to fit in. Uh, tell us about your family. Did you know that things weren't great between your parents? Was there any inkling that their marriage was breaking down? And you, you've mentioned your older brother. Were they just the, the two siblings? No, at that time, um, I've, there was my parents, my older brother, who's just a year older than me. And a younger brother who's three years younger. So all around that time, I'm just starting school, high school, sorry. So I'm sort of the end of first year, start of second year. My brother's in the same school. He was in the same hockey program. Um, my parents had been, I knew that they were separating. So all around that time, we, sort of, we were blindsided one time with the conversation. But I, that was first before the knees. But before that, like my dad was amazing. He'd take us camping all the time, fishing every weekend. He was at every single game of mine, take me to practice, you know, take us skateboarding and surfing and make sure we do our homework. And it just, you know, you could, could barely fault the guys on that side of things. And so, and I really felt like betrayed by him going. The only reason he could have possibly left, the only rationale I could dig up in my sort of 13 year old mind is that he really didn't care about us. It really, really rocked the um, the foundation of what I'd believed about everything in life, who I was, who we were as a family, uh, my Christian faith, because I was brought up in church. It really just scuttled me. You mentioned that your older brother had already started mixing with the, the wrong crowd, and it was around that time that you started dabbling in drugs yourself. Your brother's only a year older than you, so you're still both very young. How did the connections into that kind of world begin? Yeah, so I actually don't really know how he started to get involved. Um, I, whether that was around the time my parents separated. Looking back, actually, I'd say that's what's happened. And so he started hanging out with these guys. So he would have been 13, 14 at that point. And then I've sort of 
joined in with them when I was 13. So he would have been 14 by then. Put a lot of it down to, definitely down to the people we're hanging out with, our peer group, but also it had a lot to do with the music we're listening to. Um, we're listening to a lot of hip hop. Drugs were glorified. So much of it was talking about how drugs are cool, how they're a way of making money, a way of basically dominating your circumstances. Um, and it also spoke a lot about violence and how violence is, you know, the way you get respect and the way you hold respect. You know, we just really identified with that music and with that that subculture, trying to emulate these guys. I, I'd never bothered that I wasn't smoking our weed. Like I'd never wanted to do it. I didn't have any attract there was just nothing there for me but i was listening to a song the the there's a line in the song said when you smoke talking about marijuana when you smoke like i smoke then you're high like every day and i remember just listening to that song one time and then just like the penny dropped and i was just like i'm not one of the guys like i'm not like these people and i felt like a real tryhard. i i just thought you know what today i'm gonna try marijuana because it was at the bus stop every afternoon, the boys would sit in a circle and pass the bong around. And I thought, today, when it gets passed to me, I'm not just going to pass it by, I'm actually going to try it. And that afternoon, I did that. I, I tried it. An interesting um, side note to it is the guy whose pot it was that day, he's a guy I grew up with. Um, his family is actually the family that got us into playing hockey. You know, it was, it was a really good friend and a really like huge influence on me growing up. And he actually died of a heroin overdose at the age of 20. So so this is the guy who's, you know, it's his pot. I've tried it for the very first time. And this is something where I think young people need to be told about drugs. People don't just go and throw their life away, like, for no reason. Typically, these drugs have a really solid immediate payoff, like, in the terms of actually getting high. Like, you feel really good. And that first time I got stoned, man, it was like all my problems were gone. The the pain of my dad leaving was just gone. Uh, the disappointment of losing my Olympic dream was just gone. I really felt like I fitted in with the guys. And I actually had the thought that very first time, I remember like so clearly, it was looking back, it's almost like it was a thought placed into my head from the outside, but it was so clear in my mind. It was like, if I can just keep feeling like this, everything will be okay. And I was literally addicted to marijuana the very first time I tried it, which some people say that marijuana is not addictive. I tell you, I have no idea what they're talking about. But then I had another thought at that same sort of that same day was if this is how good pot is, I wonder how good all the other drugs are. And basically, I went on a quest to, you know, try all these other drugs. How do 13, 14, 15-year-old boys get their hands on the, the sort of money that it takes to, to buy these drugs? Um, well, I was 13. I started selling for the boys that were older than me to the kids in my year. And I would sell a certain amount of pot and I'd get a certain amount for free. And when that wasn't working for different reasons, like supply issues, you'd go and do break and enters and you know steal from different things and different people and shops and all of that. It was really the start of a... I guess, a life of crime at that point. Yeah, it was. It was totally. And, you know, man, you look at prisons, they're full of, they're full. A majority of the people that are in there are because of drugs. You won't say it's easy money, but you don't have to be disciplined to make enough money to get by. So whereas if you've got a job, you've got to wake up at a certain time, do what the boss says, at a, you know, and all of this, when you're 
just doing that life, you wake up when you want, you go out and do it. For someone who's already emotionally crippled to the point where they have to, you know, self-medicating, which and that's all that drug addiction is, is you've got people that are in such bad shape, they're self-medicating to escape from their situation emotionally. You've mentioned that you were on a quest to try a variety of drugs. The Verve had a song some years ago titled The Drugs Don't Work. Did that ever become your experience? Yeah, they, they stop soon enough. You get a tolerance, builds up. The problem with it is, is that, well, there's been a lot, multiple problems, but the first sort of problem is is when the drugs stop working, and, and by that I mean they, they effectively they stop covering the pain is really, I think, the, the simplest way of putting it. That is, you can imagine you, I mean, even medicine will, like, will tell you this, you you're taking painkillers for a pain and you take them a longer time enough and your tolerance keeps building up you need to take more and more of them to deal with that pain or if you keep doing it long enough that will stop dealing with the pain and and that's what happened to me like the marijuana and stopped making me feel good and the alcohol stopped making me feel good and the pills I was popping and the acid and everything was it wasn't making me feel good anymore but at the same time I couldn't not use them because not using them made me feel even worse. So it was almost like now you've got no payoff for using drugs except that you don't get the really horrible uh, withdrawals or the really horrible problem of being straight. And basically what happened from there was I think I was 16 and I made a decision. I was just like, oh, I felt so stuck. I was like, oh, I need to get high. All of these drugs aren't doing it. I was like, I'm going to try heroin. And I knew what that meant. I knew that heroin was super addictive. I knew that it was super expensive, super dangerous. I was a smart enough little kid as well. Like, I actually weighed it up and thought, you know, the pros and the cons. And I knew that there was no upside to this. But I still did not feel like I had another choice because I didn't realize that I could stop using drugs. That That wasn't in my in the equation so it was just like well the only solution i could see was to go harder even though i knew it was going to cost me everything and so i did it i started using heroin the very first time i shot heroin i was 16 um, and i had that same feeling not the same high but that same sort of thought that if i could just keep feeling like this everything will be okay it made me feel great for a little while but you know sure enough that that stopped working as well uh you know after a period of after a period of time. I believe that during these times, you even tried taking your own life a couple of times. Oh, it cooks your head. Like, I mean, you're dealing with people, like in my situation, you're dealing with a young guy who already was massively insecure. Any drive I had was gone. I saw no hope for the future. I'd ruined so many opportunities. I dropped out of school. You just look at some of the logical stuff. Um, you got someone who's going to be pretty low emotionally but then you chuck in all of those psychedelic chemicals um and in such strong you know drugs you're putting into to a developing mind i mean being a kid's hard enough like <laughs> you know you know being 16 17 is hard enough when you're doing everything right but yeah you mix those those chemicals in with some real lifestyle challenges um, on, t- on top of the, you know, the, the insecurities and on top of all the, I, I was like flat out suicidal. The first time I tried to end my life, I was 17. I remember just sort of just not seeing a way out. 
my mates were starting to go to jail. They're starting to die of overdoses. People were starting to get hepatitis C, getting kicked out of home. Like I, I literally could see no way out. Like where before, when I could see no way out, oh, there was like there was heroin. At least I could use heroin to make me feel okay. Now I was at this point where I was on heroin and it wasn't doing it for me. I just I could see nothing. And I'm like, well, uh, I might as well end my life. What's the point of sticking around here for? To you know, to to live like this. And yeah, I, I made a genuine attempt at suicide, and praise God, it didn't work. But I was put in Greylands Mental Institution and I was there for a while. I came out of there and just nothing, like just just went right back to it. So even after having to spend time in a mental institute, you didn't have reason to think, well, this isn't working. I need to stop this kind of self-destructive life. Were you still thinking there was no way out? Yeah, well, uh, to be really honest, and I have to be pretty honest with myself in saying this, as much as you want to get off because... Well, you, you need to because, you know, just, just plain logic tells you that part of it was is I actually didn't want to get out um, because partially because that's all I'd known from quite a young age, like from 13, my whole group of friends were was in that lifestyle. I, would, I didn't know this at the time, but I've just, you know, from conversations I've had with guys trying to help them step off drugs, we actually get really scared of like what will life be like without drugs? Can I handle this? Can I? How can I function like in my, my own mind? And um, so you've got this medley of reasons why quitting doesn't seem to be a viable choice. And yeah, and and literally, I've left there and nothing changed. In your book, Kids at War: The The Battle of Addiction, you describe an overdose that nearly took your life. I believe it was one person's actions that was the difference between life and death for you. Yeah, I overdosed after a party one night, and I was, you know, rushed to hospital. I was dead by the time the paramedics got to um, this guy's house. So what's happened is I was at is at this party. We've gone back to my mate's house. I was asleep on the couch, and someone's woken up my friend whose house it was, and they said, "Can you come and wake up Jacob? He's snoring too loud. I can't sleep. I can't wake him up. Can you come and sort him out?" So they they've basically just wanted my friend to wake me up, not out of concern for my health but because that was keeping them awake but he's come out and he's heard this noise that they've complained of that was snoring and and he knows this sound because a year before he was at a mate's house kicking it watching a movie doing some drugs this guy falls asleep and my my friend thinks nothing of it and then this guy starts to what he thinks is snore and he thinks nothing of it but after a while, he realizes something's seriously wrong and he tries to wake him up. He won't wake up. He rings the ambulance. By the time the ambulance gets there, this bloke's dead, 18 years of age. So when he's come out and he's heard the noise that they thought was snoring, and so he knows straight away that this guy's not snoring, he's drowning. Like he's, So what happens is you're unconscious, you're laying on your back, you, you start to regurgitate and then you breathe that in. You're literally drowning on your own vomit. And he knew straight away, so he's jumped straight on the phone, rang the ambulance. By the time the ambulance has got to his place, I'm dead. They've had to revive me. Um, I died a few more times. My mum's called. They, they said there's no chance I'm going to survive. Um, I'd, had, I'd been dead for too long, basically. Um, the oxygen, my, my body, my brain um, and my organs had been without oxygen. Mostly my brain had been without oxygen for too long. And there was just no way I was going to survive. And they've put a piece of paper in front of her 
which is they're asking her to sign a permission waiver from them to give away my organs. She didn't, which I'm pretty grateful for. But so I've pulled through, but I was in a coma for a week, but I've pulled through and, and I've woken up. I had to learn how to walk again. I had to learn how to breathe again. But the day I could walk, I walked straight out of the hospital and went right back to it. Yes, it was like not a lesson was learned. And even when I was in that hospital, I remember there was a, a lady come to me, counsellor, and she said, you need help, you know. And I said, what do I need help for? And she's like, for your drug problem. And I said, lady, I don't have a drug problem. I like using drugs. Leave me alone. So you, you've been committed to a mental institute and gone straight back to using drugs. You've overdosed, been in a coma for a week, connected to machines and gone straight back to using drugs seen others that you know lose their lives by doing the same sorts of things that you're doing, yet you're still taking drugs. Nothing so far has shaken you hard enough to change. What would finally shake you to the point of saying, enough's enough, something needs to be done? It's actually my mum. I needed some money one time and I'd ask, I went and asked her for it, which like, I hadn't asked her for money since I was a kid, since I was living at home in school. But now I was 21, I'd been out of home since I was 17, and for some reason I've gone and asked her for the money. She's told me that she doesn't want to talk to me again until I'm in rehab. And I've thought, well, rehab doesn't work. Once a junkie, always a junkie. But for her, I'll give it a go. And to be really fair, I wasn't actually giving it a go to try to get off them. I was actually giving it a go. to It, was, it would have proved to me my theory that I, I, was, I was a lost cause, basically. And I was really just thinking, this is just going to validate everything I've thought. I'm going to do this thing, go there for a few weeks. It's not going to work. And I'm just going to come out and I'm going to go as hard as I can until I'm dead, basically. That was my plan. Sure, for you, I'll go, but don't expect it to work. Your book talks about the moment that you were given a decision about which rehab to go to and the, the strange decision that you made at the time. Yeah, the the whole rehab like, structure and system was pretty crazy in my mind. Who knows? I was probably the crazy one, but I was struggling to, to work all this thing. My normal counsellor lady was, she's saying I couldn't get into rehab because I was using too much drugs. Like you need to go to a detox clinic, but I was using too much drugs to get into the detox clinic. So I need to use less drugs so I could get into the detox clinic so they could detox me to get me into a rehab. And I'm thinking, <laughs> if I could use less drugs, I wouldn't need you people. One of the weeks I go to the clinic, it was a different lady there and she. I'm sort of thinking, oh, if I lie to this lady about how much drugs I'm using, she might put me straight into the detox centre or straight into the rehab or something. So when she's asked me how much I'm doing and everything, I'm telling her like just what I think she wants to hear. But then she says, I think Teen Challenge would be good for you. Now, I had heard about Teen Challenge a few years earlier where I'd um, – I'd heard someone saying that they had gotten off heroin at Teen Challenge. And I remember at the time just thinking, what a pile of rubbish. But I do remember him saying that uh, they met God at Teen Challenge and God had helped them get off heroin. And I remember just bad-mouthing them in public you know, while, while they were saying it. But this lady said Teen Challenge, and I instantly remembered this. And then I'm like, are you a Christian? Are you trying to push God on me? She's like, no, 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 we'll find you somewhere else. But then there was like that little split microsecond between, are you trying to push God on me? And her saying, no, no. It was in that little, that little moment. I remember so clearly, just like everything slowed down, got quiet for a minute. I had a little conversation inside my head with God. And it was just like, man, 
this chick had talked about a miracle, like about God helping her get off heroin, and if that happened, that was a miracle. And I was thinking the only way this is going to happen is a miracle because I didn't even want to stop using as much as I hated the life and I was, it was just, it was all I knew. Um, and I remember in that little split second just saying to God, I said, God, if you're real, you can make me stop wanting to use drugs. And I said, if you do that, I will serve you for the rest of my life. She's like, no, no, we'll find you somewhere else. I'm like, no, no, give me, give me the God place. And she's like, no, 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 we'll find you somewhere else. I'm like, lady, give me the God place. And I don't remember much from there to, but I was a couple of months later, ended up down at Teen Challenge and um, yeah, the fun really started. I understand you were picked up by a young guy who you thought fitted all the Christian stereotypes. Good Christian boy. Yeah, so I, like, I know this is a Christian place. I'm like all prepared for a bit of God stuff. And this little Vietnamese guy, he's the one that collects me from, it's a 10-hour bus ride, Rodney. So he comes out, he collects me from, from the bus. He was so clean cut. Look, he just was like a church boy looking kid. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I remember just feeling so hopeless at that point. I was like, this guy looks like he's never even had Panadol. And just thinking, how can he help me? But then I got talking with him. And he'd had the same, he was into the same stuff I'd been into. He'd been through the gangs and dealing heroin and you know, all sorts of nasty business. And it's just like to talk to him, you would never in a million years think he had a habit. Like he, it was just like, whoa, this guy's the real deal. And I remember it was just on the literally on the drive out there where I made where I actually had the thought. It was like, wow, this is possible. I can do this. Like if it happened for him, it can happen for me. All this time, you've thought that there's no hope for people like you who are addicted to a life of drugs. Yet he's living proof of that change being possible. Yeah, right in front of me, and saying he'll walk alongside me through it too. You're talking about having to, to detox from everything you'd been pumping into your body and you'd lied to get there because you understated what drugs you were taking. So they don't even know what they're dealing with when you walk through the front door. Oh, man, I was sick. So I'd taken a bunch of drugs that day. So I've slept fine that night. But, man, after that, I did not sleep well. So the, the first morning was probably the start of the wake-up call. So someone's knocked on my door at 7 o'clock in the morning and I'd be like, the only time I'd ever be up at seven o'clock is if I hadn't been to bed yet. So I'm like, this guy's knocked on my door seven o'clock. So oh, it's time to wake up. And I just sort of went off my brain at him. I just was like, you get out. Of, this is like one of the staff members. I'm like, get out of my bleeping room or I'll cut your bleeping throat. <laughs> and, you know, he went, he left. I didn't see him again for the day or for the morning. And they let me sleep it off. And, oh, man, that was the last time I slept for so long. And I remember for that first couple of weeks, just so, so sick, Rodney. Like, man, like there'd be times where I'd literally fall to the ground, my muscles, all my body in my body just totally seized up, cramping to the point where I'm actually curled into a little ball, like not my choice, and shaking and feeling like I was being electrocuted and stuff. And like, I'd just be, every chance I got, I would just find a piece of sun to go and lay in just because... Like, I was sick, man. But I wasn't sleeping either. I remember, like, every night, we used to be, like, looking forward to going to bed because I was so tired. But then not sleeping. And, like, the amount of times I watched the sun come up, oh, it was months before I could sleep again. I mean, oh, it was horrific. You said that you believed only a miracle could turn your life around. This supposed cure is sounding pretty horrific. So when did the miracle come? I reckon it came when I met that guy at the bus stop. 
because the night before I left, I'd popped my shoulder out in a fight, so I dislocated my shoulder, um, and I've gone to the, you know, which didn't help the sleeping situation, and so they've taken me to the doctors, and I had the, you know, the option for some something to help with the pain and sleeping, and I'm like, no, nah, I don't want any of that stuff. Like, <laughs> I don't want anything to help me sleep. I don't want anything to help with the pain. I just want to be have nothing to do with these with drugs, even the prescribed stuff that the. I was just like, I don't want anything. And so I was like, literally that straight away, I just had no taste for it at all. Even though I had to go through the detox, the physical side of it, emotionally, I was done with it. Like I was I was through it. Yeah, well, I mean, like not learning how to live like a healthy life or anything, but the, the as far as wanting drugs, I was done like day one. So after the, the horror of the detox, it was then a matter of learning how to live a healthy life. What did that mean for you? Well, I talk about that detox and it's like, it sounds pretty bad and going, looking back, it is, it was terrible. But that was the easy bit. Like you can make your body do stuff. You know, you just got to watch a marathon and you see some people doing some pretty incredible things. And But the, the real hard thing for me was the emotional stuff because you got to remember that it was the emotional stuff is why I got onto drugs in the first place and it was the emotional stuff is why I kept going harder and kept using more and more. And I'll tell you the biggest the biggest key to the whole thing was learning that I was made on purpose by a God who loved me and had a plan for my life. That was the the biggest key. And I was, I really struggled to believe it though that I, I you know on heaps of levels but having that nugget is what got me through. Like that is, and it's still today is is what gets me through. What age are you at this point? I went in there at twenty one, um, and it took me uh, fourteen months to finish the program. So, and I finished it, and I just turned twenty three. Here you are at that point of learning the basics of how to live a normal, healthy life. You're a twenty one year old man having to deal with the emotional baggage of a. 12 or 13 year old that had never been dealt with yeah flat out like basically once you start checking out with drugs you don't mature past that point to a degree because that's how we learn like we have a problem we work our way through it and we've grown it's called maturing and yeah and i just did not do that process so it's one of the things you see about teen challenges it doesn't matter what age the bloke gets down there they've actually just changed the name of it to adult and teen challenge because they're just finding more and more grown men going in there. To a large extent, they've all got the the psychology of of a you know of someone in their mid teens because of exactly what you said. Like they've not growing past it emotionally. It's an interesting journey that you've been on, and as I said, you thought only a miracle could make you change. You've mentioned that you had to come to an understanding that you were created on purpose. And that there was a God that loved you. So how did that finally settle for you? When did all of that begin to make some kind of sense? Gosh, good question. So I take it back before I went to Teen Challenge and you're talking about, you know, all these crazy things that happened and, you know, you know like the hospitals, the, the mental institutions and the overdoses and all of that stuff. And people look like, a, you know, and say, well, you know, these, surely that was your rock bottom moment. No, surely that was your rock bottom moment. Like my lowest point in life was driving down, the, I was along the freeway with one of my mates and a song came on the radio, Grinspoon, 
and the, the the lyric went something like this. It's like, were you born to be a star? Were you born to be more than you are? And I remember listening to that song and knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that I, and this is someone, a flat-out drug addict, on our way to score some heroin, breaking every speed, like every law on the road to get to this place quicker. At that point, I remember like just knowing that I was meant, I was made for something special. I was made for something more. I was made to do something important and I could see no way of getting there. Like I had this drug problem. I had no education. I had no drive. It was just like that was my lowest point, realizing I was meant for something and not having any awareness of how I could get there. I know that you had a, a little bit of a picture of what you were meant for. Tell us about that picture that you carried with you in your mind. I had this picture of like what I would actually like for a life. I saw a, a girl who would love me for me. That was just that was like that desire in my heart. I mean, I wanted a family, one of my own kids, like two boys was actually what I just this image I saw. My own house where I couldn't get kicked out of anymore. A job that I didn't hate, not even one that I liked. <laughs> wasn't that wasn't even the dream. It was just a job I didn't hate. And I remember that seeing that picture, and that was so far from possible in my mind that I attempted suicide. But as I've started to get my life back on track at Teen Challenge, like that, there was a sniff of it. You know, like it was like, well, uh, God's got a good plan for my life, and and He can get me there. As well as starting to wake up that those feelings, like no, I can be do, I can do something significant with my life. My my life can make it like be called to make a difference in the lives of a lot of people. So you've had this picture of a wife, a couple of sons, a, a job that you don't hate. Uh, you've now been through all the detox. You've been through the rehab. We fast forward quite a number of years to the current day. What does life look like for you now? It looks remarkably similar to that picture. <laughs> It was about five or six years ago, I remember that picture came to mind and I was just like, whoa, this is my life now. Happily married, built our own home, had two little boys. And it was literally like that dream that was impossible was now not just a, a potential, it was like I was living it. So, And it was just like far out. The impossible is real. Like I'm literally living this impossible dream. And it's now tangible and I live in the house and I tuck those boys into bed every night. Um, and there was a dog in the picture as well and I got a really cool dog. But it was just like, whoa. I was just like, it's time to dream again. And I went back to the drawing board. It was just like open up my heart. I was like, right. Like I know that I wasn't just created to have my 2.4 kids and my own little piece of Australia. I was like, I am created to do amazing things. And I went back to the drawing board. And at that time I was uh, pastoring a church, the church with we're still pastoring now but as a young guy it was literally my dream job forget about a job i didn't hate it was like my dream job and and i you know just dreamt again and, and put some a few more things on paper and and then god sort of added some surprises to it we had a beautiful little girl and now i'm i still pastor the church but i'm off staff at the church i'm not staff anymore and i run my own company uh purpose and destiny which you know the goal of it is is to help people discover their purpose in life and empower them to fulfill their destiny through some of the keys that I've learned, you know, a bunch of facets like through drug education in schools to sharing my story as well as, um, you know, speaking in church. And But on top of that, doing the stuff that I was doing before, that was great. It's not like got rid of stuff to do new stuff. It's just like adding to my life. Someone listening right now might think, well, that's great for you, but can it work for anyone else? I mean, let's admit it. 
you had seen maybe one or two people who'd been able to kick heroin, but you didn't really believe that that was possible, especially for you. So someone listening might be thinking, well, for me, that's just not possible. Someone else listening might be thinking, there's someone that I love who's addicted. Is it possible for them? Really possible? What would you say? Well, I'd seen zero people that had gotten off. That one girl who I saw her, but I didn't actually believe that it worked for her. I know her now, and yes, it worked. So to really understand it, my both of my brothers went down the same road I went down. Um, my, my little brother, he started using, the first time he was busted selling drugs, he was like nine or 10 years old. They, they both ended up heroin addicts as well. Today, my, both of my brothers uh, have been through Teen Challenge, they're off drugs, got you know beautiful families, own their own homes, like just, just doing well in life. Uh, my friend who rang the ambulance for me, he's off drugs. He's actually goes to church with us. And a, a real kicker was uh, I just realized the other day that guy that I was driving in the car with when I say uh, that song came on and, and, you know, where I had that, were you born to be a star? That guy, he's been through Teen Challenge as well. He He's off heroin too now. He's mar- happily married and, man, God is – if he'd done it for one person, he'll do it for anybody. But to take it one step further, my wife, Melissa, her story basically reflects mine perfectly. Change a few names, a few dates, a few details. Her life is is exactly the same as mine. She, and then she's gone through Teen Challenge, encountered God, kicked drugs and alcohol addiction, and really has had a radical transformation. And now she... You know, so she's another one. So there's, it definitely is good for me, but I'm not alone. It's good to know that there is hope available for people who have thought that things are hopeless. If someone is wanting to perhaps get in touch with you and talk through some of the things that you've experienced that would help them on their way or even get a hold of your books, um, how would they do that? Um, probably the easiest way would be maybe jump on my website, uh, which is jacobhill.org. And there's a connect page there or, um, you know, if they look me up on Facebook and I'm pretty good at responding to the messages and stuff. Jacob, your life has certainly had many ups and quite a few downs and I'm sure that it's still not a perfect life, but it's in a very different place to where it was. You say that really it came down to a miracle and that miracle is still happening every day. Man, I get to see it every day. I've got friends that are still in the scene and I... uh, you know, I still pray for them and I still hope uh, and believe that they'll come through it. And I, and I watch them over the years. I watch them just one at a time, just coming through it. Jacob, thank you so much for your time today. As I mentioned, you've written your story down into a book that people can grab hold of if they want to read through and get some of the stories in a bit more detail. It's called Kids at War, The Battle of Addiction, and it's it's a great read. We look forward to seeing where this miracle will take you next. It's been an absolute delight to chat with you. Thanks heaps for having me, Rodney. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.